Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Peacock is streaming your favorite shows, movies, live sports, breaking news, exclusive originals, and every live WWE pay-per-view. It's The Office, Chrisley Knows Best, and Peacock original shows like Funky Brewster. Peacock, watch for free, upgrade for more. Stream now at PeacockTV.com. Podcast. I'm joined with David Higgins. How's it going, man? Good. How are you, Dave? As you take a large slug of beer <sighs> Good, on a yeah. Sunday afternoon. It is absolutely lashing outside, and I feel like I've earned it, quite frankly. Uh, Norma Howard is not with us for this episode. She's off making an actual film, whereas we're just going to talk about them. Putting us firmly in our place, you know? It's like, I mean, someone who's actually contributing to the world of cinema, unlike us, who are just going to give out about it, I suppose. Yeah, there's definitely going to be some whinging on this episode. Yes, well, this episode is all about Evita, Madonna 1996 classic. Lots to talk about. I mean, like, I don't even know where to begin because I was kind of blindsided by this one, despite the fact that it's been out for 24 years. But we'll jump straight into our What We've Been Watching section. Now, it's been a while since we've done an episode of No Popcorn. And uh, at time of recording, the news has filtered through that No Time to Die has been pushed back till next year, effectively perhaps literally killing cinemas. Um, its outlook is very, very bleak. We did get to a major film this year, one of the only ones released. We saw Tenet. It's about a month old now. We won't spend too long talking about it because I feel like we've probably exhausted all we can through our own letterboxed accounts or just general conversation and it has kind of moved on. But, you know, we can give some summary, I guess. Where are you on Tenet now that it's been in your brain for the last month or so? Um, it's not something I'm returning to or it hasn't really stuck with me in terms of like thinking about it but I guess I guess you still kind of talk about it with a lot of people because just by the sheer virtue of the fact that it is 
the only film or certainly the only big movie that's been released this year and is going to be released this year. Um, we went to see it together. We were both quite underwhelmed. I think it's fair to say. I think you more so than I. Um, I was intrigued for the first hour. Um, it kind of had me a little bit. I, you know, it, it, it was nonsensical. It plot meandered. There was a lot of just, um, kind of just nonsense talk trying to explain science that I was totally fine with because, you know, you know, you had the popcorn there and you're like, well, at the end of this, I'm going to get to see some cool stuff on the big screen. And that feels like such a novelty in and of itself. But that never really arrives, uh, which was the, the the main thing that I took away from it. Um, you know, it builds up to a big climactic battle that is really kind of dour looking. The whole movie is is incredibly dour looking. You know, I think, you know, people are like, this is his Bond film. And, you know, one of the great things about Bond movies, and particularly at a time when you can't really leave your own city, is like doing some jet setting and seeing the world while Christopher Nolan is going to show you like a airport in Norway and a, you know, a motorway in Estonia. It's like, it's not really the thing that you want. And even there's a scene where they go to, to Ravello on uh, the Amalfi Coast in Italy, which I was there before. And it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. But like shot through Christopher Nolan's eye, where the color scheme is seemingly only allowed to be composed of colors that, you know, he would wear if they were a suit. It's kind of, yeah, it's just super flat. Um, it's been a failure, I think, both because of, you know, everything that's happening that it hasn't been able to get the full release, but also because... Even though I like everyone in the movie, like for a big movie, it doesn't really have star power. It doesn't have, um, you know, just that something extra that I think you need in a movie like this. Like, you know, it's the easiest to compare it to Inception and that is loaded with actual stars. And while, you know, Robert Pattinson might be a star to some, like he's spent the past decade making very weird, esoteric indie movies and is only now kind of coming back into that arena. So, um, yeah, a major, major disappointment. Um, I didn't want it to be. Like, I'm not the hugest Christopher Nolan bro, but, um, you know, you want this movie to do well because it's an original idea. You also just want movies to do well in general because we like going to see them. Yeah, I mean, I don't, like, it's it's kind of, it was kind of in one ear and out the other for me. I wasn't anticipating it would be particularly great or anything, but it is an absolutely colossal mess that just doesn't work. I mean, everything from the sound mix, which has been talked about to death and just, uh, it's just kind of Nolan showing actual contempt for the audience. I appreciate that he's out there and he wants to kind of hit you with a barrage and really overwhelm you as a, as a moviegoer. Nothing necessarily wrong with that if you pull it off. But what you have then when all the threads connect or don't connect is a story that isn't very interesting. Like, it's just very rote and kind of weak. Um, Pattinson's great, I guess. You know, he's doing kind of a faux Richard E. Grant impression for most of the movie. But I'm not too convinced by John David Washington. I think Elizabeth Debicki is a good actor, but gets nothing to play with here. Kenneth Branagh kills the film, torpedoes it the second he shows up with a dreadful Russian accent. Uh, he's just chewing the fucking scenery like a giant ham every time he's on screen, and it's too much for me. I like the score by Ludwig Jonsson, and that's very enjoyable, and I've still listened to that outside of the movie. But nah, it's just like... Too clever by half, you know, and just it just didn't grab me. I thought it was silly. Uh, there's one amazing moment where they're discussing the kind of, you know, world-ending capability of the plot, 
And Elizabeth, like, I think Robert Pattinson is like, if this thing happens, the entire world will die. And then Elizabeth Debicki's character, who's literally lying on a stretcher, damsel in distress, goes, including my son. And it's like, Jesus Christ, like, as always, that kind of tin ear for dialogue, tone deaf stuff, you know, it's just, it's just not good. And I mean, like, I would agree with you, though, that, yeah, it's a shame it didn't fucking, like, save cinema or anything, but, like... I don't know. I mean, future ain't so good. Um, I guess, what else have we been watching? It's spooky season, a time of recording. We're recording this at the start of October. We're both challenging ourselves to try and watch 31 horror films in 31 days. How are you getting on so far? Um, I am three for three so far. Um, yeah, I've been doing this for the, the past couple of couple of years. Um, just... I don't. I don't know why. I mean, I guess it's just, you know, it's, it's colder, you're staying inside, watch some spooky films. Um... I failed spectacularly, I think I said last year, by watching a movie that wasn't actually a horror movie. Um, but this year, I started off with uh, Child's Play 3, uh, directed by Jack Bender of Lost fame. Um, I, I, have a, I have a soft spot for the, the Child's Play movies. They're all kind of one and the same, um, but they're fun. Um, you know, even though they never really approach anything more than like a, a nice three out of five, uh, including the, the remake that was out last year. So, um, yeah, this, this third one is utter garbage. Um, it kind of continues to follow the story of, of Chucky trying to, uh, terrorize poor Andy Barclay. Um, except he's all grown up. Uh, he's played by the guy who was Jimmy Olsen in the uh, adventures of Lois and Clark. Uh, <laughs> And he's in a military school this side, this time. So it's kind of like having a little bit of fun with the kind of industrial military complex of the US, but it just, it doesn't have the one liners, doesn't have the creative kills. It's when it does have kills, it tends to be, you know, kids being shot with guns. And there's, there's a scene where one kid, you know, heroically throws himself on a hand grenade while they're like supposed to be having some sort of, you know, war games. Um, a very very terrible film. Um, better was my my next choice, which was uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street Two: Freddy's Revenge. Um, this was fun. Again, uh, I think all the all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies have a fairly good floor of being decent. Um, you know, the the first one's a classic, and they you know progressively are of middling quality, but they they all have a a fun kind of obviously dreamlike you can be it can be quite creative in 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 people being murdered in it um this one has like a a really strong homoerotic undertext running through it about you know similar to chucky wanting to get inside a child uh this involves freddy trying to like get inside a young boy to basically overtake him um a lot of fun you know gore is very nice and it's kind of classic 80s uh, animatronics and makeup. Um, very, very good. And then finally, um, I tied in my uh, spooky season with my Pedro Almodovar season. Um, uh, Mubi, of course, the, yeah, natural. Well, I've been, Mubi have been, uh, have been basically, not all of his movies, but they've, they've been having an Almodovar season. So there's lots of his movies that I just hadn't seen. I was like, it's this better time than ever to uh to get around to them and to revisit some ones I love. Uh so I watched, you know, a high a thriller, but I think it's the closest thing he'll ever make to a horror, uh, the skin I live in. It was a rewatch. Um yeah, it's 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 something. Anyway, uh really enjoyable film. 
it's it's the kind of thing that if you put it in someone else's hands, like the plot kind of isolated mad scientist performing experiments on people, like could very, very easily veer into like the human centipede territory. But the way Amadovar's approach to it and his um his stylistic flourishes and and you know the empathy that he shows for characters particularly ones who really maybe don't deserve your empathy um makes it something um all the more different um but yeah really really good on a rewatch it's structurally a bit all over the place but um yeah that's where i am so far in spooky season still plenty more to come as for me in spooky season, yeah, I'm 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 the same. I'm three down as well, uh, including a Freddy Krueger movie of sorts, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, the meta horror from 1994 that paved the way for Scream a couple of years later, with uh, with which Wes Craven does a much better job. I remembered enjoying this one a lot more than it actually holds up. It's pretty ropey, like it's got a TV movie sensibility. It starts off with no opening credits because you know, ooh, pretension. It also has an end credit where it, you get like um. And Freddy Krueger as himself. <laughs> it's like, what are you trying to do? For anyone who doesn't know, this is like, I think it's like the seventh film in the Nightmare on Elm Street series where the, the like the, the horse had long bolted. And essentially it's like a meta commentary about like Heather Langenkamp, who was in the first film and the third film. It's her in real life. And she's having like, you know, she's being stalked and she was stalked in real life. And it's kind of like, Wes Craven's writing a movie about, you know, the Nightmare on Elm Street series. And it's kind of one of those, you know, what he's writing is what's happening in real time. And it's less about Freddy Krueger and more of a demonic entity that takes the form of Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger, incidentally, who is barely in this film, by the way. It's really kind of boring. It's more of a thriller than a horror. And it contains one of the all-time most irritating child performances by Miko Hughes, who I believe was also in, like, Mercury Rising and Pet Cemetery, and he was the go-to kid for a while. It's, yeah, it doesn't hold up. It's got some nice ideas. Um, it's got John Saxon milling around uh, wearing some le- leisure wear, which I enjoyed. But uh, yeah, it just doesn't really hold up. I watched a South Korean revenge film <laughs> for a change um, <laughs> called Bedeviled, uh, which was good, but not amazing. And by the end of it, it was very much like, yeah, I need to take like 17 cold showers. And I guess last night I also watched uh, The Neon Demon, Nicholas Winding Refn film that I really, really enjoy. Um, I know a lot of people don't. I will say that like this is probably like my third or fourth time seeing it. And it did lose something for me this time. It did, I, like, I, I'm kind of more on the side of like, I can understand all of the arguments against it a lot more than I ever did before. But I do think as a sensory experience, it's fucking amazing. And it's got a lot going for it, including a great score, a great soundtrack by Cliff Martinez. However, I do believe, by the way, that um, me mentioning Nicholas Winding Refn is perhaps a perfect pathway for the other season that you've been enjoying because I think he pops up somewhere along the way in a hilarious DVD extra for you. Yeah, I'm I'm also enjoying uh, William Friedkin's season. Um, I I got a I got a Blu-ray of, of Sorcerer. Um, I would say maybe his his masterpiece, but his much his much troubled production um, from from the late seventies. And the, the, the Blu-ray contains like a, a 75 minute conversation between William Friedkin and Nicholas Winding Refn. Um, I think there's parts of it you said that you, you'd found some, some parts on YouTube. I would recommend anyone with any kind of passing interest in either of them to, to seek it out. Uh, you have Winding Refn who, you know, you can tell, you know, by his movies alone that he has a pretty high opinion of himself and he's, He's talking to Freakin and he's trying to like sell this idea that he 
Nicholas Winding Refn is the new Billy Friedkin and Friedkin's kind of just like, who is this guy? <laughs> why, why am I in this room with this guy? Um, he really kind of harbors on about how much of a spectacular commercial failure Sorcerer was. Um, for, for no one, for people that don't know, Sorcerer was what he made after the Exodus and he was basically kind of given carte blanche to do anything that he wanted. So he decided to, um, make this movie with no people who were really famous in it. Like Roy Scheider is the most famous person in it. And then he kind of rounded out the cast with European actors, um, filmed it in the Dominican Republic um, on this insane set that was probably only came second to, um, you know, what was happening when Coppola was making Apocalypse Now. It was also around that same time and they were kind of, you know... Um, I think there was like a bit, bit of a dick swing contest in Hollywood of like who could make, who could make the most troubled shoot, who could really get in the muck. Um, so anyway, uh, he makes Sorcerer. It's not in any way a, a horror film as you might think by the, the name of it. There's no fantasy elements. It's basically just guys driving around a truck with dynamite in the back of it through the jungle. Um, it was released a week after Star Wars came out and, absolutely tanked it kind of really kind of torpedoed freaking's career for a little while and he kind of had to to come back on it but winding ref and just like keeps hitting this point and freaking kind of gets tired with him about it but the one great moment of this this <laughs> blu-ray extra is um they're they're talking about kind of legacy and at one stage winding ref was just like talking about failures again and uh you know, Freakin's like, well, you know, your your last movie didn't do well. Uh, he's referring to uh, Only God Forgives, the Thai set Ryan Gosling starring gore fest with zero dialogue. Um, and Winer Reference like, oh, no, actually, it did quite well. Like, it only made 10 million, but it only cost five. So it was actually a success, uh, you know, so it was it was pretty good. And, you know, that movie's a masterpiece. Cute. <laughs> Cut to Freakin. Just mouth agog being like you think that is a masterpiece <laughs> and winding refn is just like yes of course and he's like if that's a masterpiece what is citizen kane <laughs> and refn's like i, I oh, guess wow. it's a, i love I it it's i love it movie uh, i like only god forgive us quite a lot i think it's a really good movie um but yeah i don't know i mean i guess i should throw in real quick as well i, I watched the farewell which is a film that we talked about in no popcorn before i finally got around to it i thought it was absolutely brilliant uh, i didn't need the very very last shot of the film kind of in, like almost like a post-credit stinger thing in a way uh i'm just pretending that that bit wasn't there it's an amazing film though and i would recommend it to literally everybody but it's time to talk about a different film. You mentioned The Skin I Live In there. One of its stars, of course, is Antonio Banderas, a Mediterranean superstar. And he's a big part of this film. This film is, of course, Evita. Let's take a listen to the trailer and we'll come back and talk about it. Released in America on Christmas Day in 1996. Fun for all the family. Dave Higgins, tell us all about this film. A film for me that was like everywhere when it was everywhere. It was on the back cover of Empire magazine. I think my parents went to see it. 
I had a vague approximation of who Ava Peron was, what it was about. But at the same time, not really. Like, we'll get into it. But like, when I sat down to watch this, my mind was kind of blown. But for now, give us some background on this one. Yes. Yeah, so, um, Evita, this is Alan Parker's adaptation of the Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber musical Evita. Um, Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber, kind of post Jesus Christ Superstar, came up with the idea for Evita. And much like Jesus Christ Superstar, they released it first as a concept album, as a thing you could do in the 70s, as kind of like the teaser to your musical, is release the entire uh, the, the, the entire thing as an album. Um, it was like an in- insanely big success. Uh, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina went to number one. So even before it kind of made it to the stage, it was already like this huge cultural landmark. Um, so even before it came to the stage, uh, Alan Parker, who was just kind of coming off I guess Bugsy Malone, which was his uh, debut in 1975, had approached um, the producers and Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice about, you know, have you thought about making a, a movie of it? Um, they said, you know, we want to do the stage adaptation first. And, you know, that was a massive smash, garnered huge plaudits, some very interesting uh, famous fans who maybe we'll touch on later. And then eventually kind of a couple of years after it was released, they they wanted to look to see about making a movie adaptation of it. Uh, Robert Stigwood, who was the producer, kind of went back to Parker and was like, do you want to do this? And he was like, oh, I don't know. He, after Bugsy Malone had made Midnight Express, but then was in the middle of making Fame, another musical. And he was like, oh, okay, I'm already two for three uh, in my career making musicals. I don't know if this is necessarily the thing that I want to do. Um, so then he was kind of badgered by by Stigwood. Um, if I can give you like a quote from Alan Parker himself, I, I, I know you enjoy the kind of the carry on of 1970s Hollywood producers um, in terms of just like sheer gluttonous success. Um, Alan Parker actually has a remarkable website for anyone who doesn't know where he writes very, very well thought out essays about every single movie he's ever made. They're very long. He should have definitely turned it into a, a nice book. But um, this is Parker talking about uh, Robert Stigwood trying to get him to make a Vita. I had the pleasure of being invited to the Broadway opening by the producer, Robert Stigwood. Robert asked me if I would like to make a film of Evita, and I told him I'd give him my answer when I had finished my film Fame, which I was doing then in New York. After completing fame and while enjoying some rest on the Caribbean island of San Martin, I received a call from Robert, from Robert, who was steaming toward the island in his yacht. I'd always been a tad <laughs> wary of Robert's enthusiasm ever since 1977 when he went to great lengths to encourage me to do a film version of Sgt. Pepper and hired a hundred out-of-work actors to pick it and heckle the hotel where I was staying in Los Angeles. The crowd, carrying balloons and placards, <laughs> chanted, Alan Parker, Sergeant Pepper is after you. There are a few moments of embarrassment in my life to match this episode. In the Caribbean, after a day of sumptuous hospitality on his boat, the like of which no mortal but Robert can provide, he asked me if I wanted to play tennis. <laughs> Forever the dutiful guest, I obliged, and the two of us were whisked across the bay in one of his launches to a nearby hotel tennis court, where we disembarked and watched the launch speed back to the yacht. The problem was with the te- was that the tennis court was locked. Robert and I, now completely stranded, walked down the dusty main street, 
Finally, out of the blue, he said, So, are you going to make a Vida or not? I mumbled that. After fame, I didn't want to do back-to-back musicals, and so my answer was no. Robert said nothing for a while, and then suddenly started bashing me with his tennis racket. I ran back to my hotel. This is a true story. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> so anyway, that didn't wow, what a... that didn't work out so well um, with 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 Alan Parker uh, to begin with. So the movie then kind of basically got passed around multiple studios, multiple producers. You know, there was times when, you know, Ken Russell was involved, Liza Minnelli was due to star, Francis Ford Coppola, Alan Pakula, um, John Peters, the uh, then one-time hairdresser, um, you know, producer of the Barbara Streisand, A Star is Born, and who may be the subject of a new Paul Thomas Anderson movie, he was involved. Uh, Eventually, Oliver Stone came on board. He wrote a script, um... He wanted Meryl Streep to be the lead in it. it. It's kind of just one of these things that was going around for years until 15 years later. It comes back to Parker. Um, at this stage, Streep was still around it and possibly Michelle Pfeiffer. If Streep does it, she wins the Oscar, right? No question. No question. She's winning the Oscar. Yeah, uh, I think it was Stone was saying that they did, you know, tests and she like, they went into a studio and she sang the whole thing and she was an incredible singer and yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, she adds to, I'm not even sure how many Oscars she's on. I know she has well over 10 nominations, but yeah, it's, it's a lock. So eventually it comes back and you get Parker back on board. Madonna had been campaigning for the role for like the best part of, you know, 10 years, sending photos of her in like, you know, um, era appropriate attire, trying to get it. She like really, really wanted this role. Um, she wrote a very uh, thoughtful note to Parker and that's when he kind of came around to the idea of casting her. And then we get the movie. So, I mean, it's a very strange film, I think, in some respects. So I didn't know this going in. I flat out did not know this. So I throw it on there. After some hesitancy of even going to it, for whatever reason, it wasn't, very unattract- it wasn't a very attractive proposition. I didn't realise that this film... I mean, it's a musical in the literal sense of it, in that it is non-stop. It's basically a two-hour, ten-minute music video. It's song after song after song after song after song. There's almost no incidental dialogue. There's almost no moments when someone is like, hey, Ava, how you doing? Like, that doesn't exist. It's If, if you get anything like that, there's one or two moments where I guess they just couldn't get singing involved. But generally, if somebody is asking her how she's doing, they're singing it, she's singing it. And it's just song into song into giant production number, giant dance number. This thing is brain melting. I was like half an hour in. I'm like, "Uh, is this going to stop? No, it's not. It is breakneck. I was exhausted by the end of this. Did you know this? Um, I don't think I did. Um, I know like we've done a previous Andrew Lloyd Webber adaptation. And I believe that was completely sang through as well. I think that's kind of his style. But... I agree with you. Um, in, in my notes at one stage, I just have, I'm knackered watching this. <laughs> because yeah, as you say, like there, there isn't a moment to, to t- kind of take in what's happening. And, and like, you know, there's, there's a lot happens in this movie, but you know, in terms of like, if you're trying to keep up with the, the dialogue, uh, another thing that kind of I, I didn't know going into it is that Antonio Banderas's character, Shay, is, you know, he's kind of the narrator. He's, you know, the Greek chorus of this thing. So he's basically just, you know, 
he's he's kind of just singing the Wikipedia entry about Ava Ferran's life, and you're you're trying to keep up with it, and you're trying to um you're trying to keep up with where we are in the in the story. You're kind of being assaulted with the sound and vision of the whole thing. Um, yeah, I agree. It's it's a very very exhausting movie, and it's a pretty long movie as well. So like, it's not like you know this was ninety minutes, and you're like, okay, you know, I, that that was fine. You know, you're in here for well over two hours, and I also kind of had no idea where it was going. Did you get that? A little bit, yeah. So like, Banderas shows up. The opening scene of the film is there are people in I think like the start of the nineteen fifties in a movie theater watching a film, and the film gets shut off. Everyone's like, "What's going on over there?" And in comes an usher who announces that Ava Peron has died, and then the entire cinema just start fucking bawling their eyes out, crying. It's a national crisis. Antonio Banderas's character is sitting in the middle of the thing, and he's just kind of looking a bit forlorn and a bit like bruised up. But he takes on all these different guises throughout the film. He's like a revolutionary. I think he's meant to be Che Guevara in a way. I think that was talked about possibly at, at some point. Um, he is in the, um, I think it was in one, yeah, in some of the productions he is Che Guevara. I think they only realized after a while, they were like, oh, Che Guevara was also from Argentina. But I think at the time when this was made, Che Guevara would have been like, a medical student, you know, if anyone's seen the Motorcycle Diaries, he would have been that Che Guevara as opposed to your Benicio del Toro era Che Guevara. Um, but I think it was like, yeah, trying to be a contrast, but they pretty much discard that for this movie. Yeah, he's like this kind of, he, he could be a bartender in one scene or he could be just like, you know, at a party or something. He Like the character doesn't exist as a, as a character. You know, he is, as you say, the chorus. He addresses the audience constantly. And I guess, you know, for the record... He sounds a bit like this. You let down your people every time You were supposed to have been immortal That's all they wanted Not much to ask for But in the end you could not deliver for it you got to give him ultimate credit here i mean at this point right first of all for the record i think he sounds like neil diamond do you think he's good i need to i need a film in which antonio banderas and pierce brosnan are singing at each other and i need it now yeah i i don't know if he's good but i do enjoy him and i do enjoy the fact that he goes hell for leather at this um i think he has um he has to do all the heavy lifting of this movie because he's you know, he's he's trying to give you the story. He kind of has the most clunky and uh, certainly the most inelegant uh, songs to sing. Like he doesn't have a, you know, You Must Love Me or a Don't Cry For Me Argentina where it's like a little bit more traditional, a little bit more classical. His his uh, performances, they, they remind me of kind of like, they're almost like meatloaf level, you know, rock and roll jukebox songs. Um, so... 
you know, he's not great, but he, yeah, I, I appreciate the effort that he puts in. And he's the only one in a movie where everyone is supposed to be from Argentina um, is able to actually <laughs> roll his oars. He he rolls them so beautifully when he says Casa Rosada. And, you know, this is a movie where a lot of the songs, people just keep saying Buenos Aires and, you know, aren't able to roll that oar. I obviously can't do it either. But, you know, if you're going to make this movie, I think that's an important thing you should have. Well, I was going to say, first of all, on the music point, you've completely stolen meatloaf from me. I have a note written down here that the music in this film is kind of woeful. You heard it at the start of this episode, like that Lethal Weapon-esque guitar riff. I've written down here that like, like this film is so melodramatic, like it's instantly melodramatic and it does not let up. Music-wise, I mean, it's simultaneously operatic and gothic, like Meatloaf was locked into a studio with U2, Queen, Bruce Springsteen and John Williams, but they were given about like five to ten presets to play with or something. It's like it has to sound this way. Um, on the subject of Banderas, and I do want to talk more about him. Uh, and we can get to that maybe later in the show, like in terms of, I guess, his legacy as an actor. But like you mentioned his ability to kind of give this film some authenticity. I mean, thank God, because he's surrounded by such Hispanic talent as Jonathan Price, Jimmy Nail and Blink and You'll Miss It, Andrea Kaur? Yeah, um, the casting in this movie is utterly baffling. Like, you know, obviously it's like it's a big Hollywood production and Hollywood has done... Has, has made some inroads in terms of representation and casting. And this is one of these movies from, you know, a different era where you're like, like, really? Is this, is this what you're, you're, you're going to give us? Like, particularly, you know, you can understand, um, maybe casting Madonna, you know, big star, someone can actually sing. Um, but like Jonathan Price is a strange one. I, I know I think he was in Miss Saigon. He's not a great singer. He doesn't, he doesn't have as many, uh, as many moments for that, but like, you know, for, for such a small role casting, you know, son of Newcastle, Jimmy Nail as, you know, this fourth build, you know, this, uh, what, like troubadour who kind of like hangs around bars and like sings romantic ballads and, you know, gives Evita, uh, her big break, just like utterly baffling. It's like that there has to be, there has to be more people that they could have cast in this. So, I mean, his character is a guy called Magaldi. Um, I'm going to give you like a 30-second snippet here of Madonna singing on a song called Ava and Magaldi. So I'll give you a taste of what she sounds like in this movie. Obviously, she is known for her singing. Here's how she does with it. And then after that, Higgs, I want you to try and explain the plot of this film to someone who might never have heard of this person at all. Because I'm not sure the film does an amazing job with it, but let's see if you can do better. But first, here's Madonna in song. <laughs> Could love a poor little nothing like me I wanna be a part of me A Buenos Aires, Big Apple She wants to be a part of me A Buenos Aires I will say I'm absolutely loving that fucking you know, music from a level of the original Doom in the background there. Like, some choices were seriously made. But seriously, just try and, like, give me a potted history of what this film is about, because it is, in and of itself, a potted history, right? Albeit a very exaggerated one, perhaps? Yeah, just just on that piece of music, my notes have it as being a primus swamp bass, is what I was getting from, from that. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, this movie is about Eva Peron, who was the 
Um, the wife, uh, she is the spiritual leader of the nation of Argentina, was awarded after her death. Uh, the wife of Juan Perón, a president, a formerly, former military general who rose to power. Um, she was a singer, a model, uh, an actress who, who kind of rose up, uh, met Perón at a time when there was like multiple military coups and instability in Argentina. Uh, Peron kind of pushed a very populist uh, agenda um, that he, you know, he wanted to, he wanted to help the, what are called the, the descamasados, like the, the shirtless, the people without shirts in Argentina. And he used Ava's um, image um, to kind of, to ascend. And they were very much a power couple. Um, she brought kind of um, star power to, um, his presidential candidacy. Um, so yeah, the movie kind of goes very, very quickly through her very quick, um, rise from, you know, the opening scene or one of the opening scenes is her as a child and she's, uh, you know, going to the funeral of her father, but she's not let in because she, she is one of the, I guess, the Descamas Sados and she's not allowed in. They don't, they don't want her there. And, you know, you can tell she already has a chip on her shoulder about that. Um, but yeah, once she makes it to the top and the, they become president, um, she goes on a tour around Europe, um, called the Rainbow Tour, where she, you know, had mixed reactions. She was loved in Spain, uh, you know, hated, called a whore or Mussolini's whore in, in Italy, was kind of given short shrift by the Pope. I think, I think the English didn't even welcome her. Um, and then she gets back and she sets up a foundation, supposedly for the poor, but, one of these kind of um, things where money was being siphoned off to like live the jolly life. And then she died very, very young. She died at 30, 33. So a very, you know, this, this movie covers a, you know, I think between the years of 15 and, and 33. Um, at a, as we said, like a breakneck speed. Um, I don't know if after it you understand really all that much about her. Uh, she's a very, very divisive figure. Uh, the Perons in general, are divisive in Argentina. They're still, or Peronists, um, which is kind of like a, a political movement now, have been most of the people leading uh, politics in Argentina f since then. But, you know, some people would say that they look after the poor. Some people would call them fascists. A very divisive person. Um, this movie, you know, I think that's why they picked her. Is like, you know, she's both boat angel and boat harlot. Um, I don't know if, you know, you got that from watching this. I mean, I, I found it like the, the, the fascism thing is interesting because there's moments where I'm like, wait a minute, hang on. I'm like, have I been paying attention? Is Juan Perón a fascist? Like, maybe and she has this um she has this big speech at one stage that is like uh, trying to rile up the the working class um you know rile them up in the in the sense of like you know put vigor and spirit into their system and have her follow but like it felt very like bane in the dark night rises to me i was just like i don't know i mean like i find it so hard because like as you mentioned breakneck pace there are times when this whole film is the opening scene of Molly's Game by Aaron Sorkin. Him just unloading a full clip on the audience, and you're like, "Jesus fucking Christ!" Like, I'm I'm imagining my parents going to see this film, which I think that they did, and I'm like, "How do like like this is so overwhelming? I can't imagine that they possibly enjoyed it." Um, and yeah, I come away from it like not knowing much about the characterization, even like, um, her and Jonathan Price getting together. 
is just so perfunctory. It's because because the script calls for it now. Here they are. Like you don't know what they're like as people. I have no idea what she's like as a person. It's a very interesting experiment to make a film like this. I think you know. Like again, it is almost like a two hour ten minute music video. And you've got Antonio Banderas basically playing a fucking, you know, wisecracking ghost in the background or the foreground, depending on what scene calls for it. Um, I'm all for ambition. And I will say Alan Parker spent his fucking budget. Like this thing is gorgeous to look at. Darius Kanji on cinematography doing a phenomenal job, uh, as he often does. Money was spent, man. The amount of extras that you see in huge kind of sequences of people like in crowds and just the spaces that they use the lighting that they use it's an extravagant mess but it is in fact a mess yeah um just just on the on the budget if i can return to the words of alan parker himself uh, he kind of was talking about um where where the money went and as he said it's all there up on the screen like i think yeah um, you know, I don't know what his greatest movie is, but he's always been a very, very good visualist. He's always had a strong aesthetic, um, you know, from the get-go, um, from Bugsy Malone all the way through. Maybe not so much to, you know, how he finished with The Life of David Gale, but um, yeah, just him talking about um, the funeral scene, which kind of the movie opens with her funeral, which is this this big gorgeous, gigantic, opulent procession that they filmed in Budapest to recreate uh, Buenos Aires. So just to give you an idea, he said, the call sheet read as follows, 4,000 crowd to include 50 mounted police plus horses, 200 soldiers, 50 50 army officers, 50 foot police, 60 sailors, 60 nurses, 300 working class women, 100 upper class women, 51 descamisitos, 20 naval officers, 12 naval police, 300 working class men, 15 palace guards, 8 pallbearers, 60 navy cadets, 60 army cadets, 300 middle class women, 300 middle class men, 100 aristo men, 100 boys, 100 girls, 200 male background, 200 female background, 1400 miscellaneous background, gun carriage, coffin, 4 army motorcycles, 2 police motorcycles, (laughs) 6 brand characters, 2 half track military vehicles, 2 fox tanks, four army trucks, et cetera, et cetera. Like this is grand wow. filmmaking that we don't get anymore in a sense. That, exactly. You know, yeah, this, this is a CGI scene with, you know, a couple of people in the front. You know, you have that scene, you have the scene in front of the Casa Rosada, which they actually filmed in. Um, they, they, had, they, they went to Buenos Aires to film and they had a, an interesting time because, again, um, the Perrons remain very, very, um, you know, they split, they split opinion in Argentina. And I think the, the, the president of the time, Carlos Menem had met with Alan Parker multiple times and was like, no, I don't really want you to film here. I don't think, you know, you're going to be good for this. I don't, I don't like what you're going to have to say. I don't like the musical. Um, he eventually Parker himself brought out the big guns by uh, going there with Madonna and she was able to organize a meeting with the president himself um, and went along with Parker, brought along a copy of the soundtrack, charmed him. And he was like, you have the Casa Rosada, like, which is the equivalent of being like able to film in like Buckingham Palace, which, you know, just doesn't really happen. But again, they went out there, they went around the globe, they put in the hard work in it, and it 100% shows no matter how kind of, at odds sometimes what's going on visually is with what is happening in the in the in the songs it's a fantastic gorgeous film 
Yeah, I think this is a two out of five film. Uh, however, both of those stars go to the production entirely. And I guess split with Antonio Banderas, who I think is a joy to watch when he's on the screen. I, before we move back into the tunes, which I want to do uh, real quick, because we, we touched on it. We mentioned it briefly. You've written this down. You've written down, quote, is this a celebration of fascism? What conclusion have you come to on that one? I don't I don't think it is because it's so muddled. And I, I don't think it really has a strong... Um, a strong stance on on anything really it, it it's it's kind of because it's like as I said like it's kind of like you're just whipping through a Wikipedia entry like there's not a lot of context for what's actually happening um there's not a lot of um depth in 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 going into why you know people loved uh Eva Peron so much you know um, you know I don't like to, to use the quote, but it, it does veer a little bit. You know, there were good people on both sides kind of argument, like kind of not really, not really um, delving into it. The one thing actually is that like, you know, um, Parker was clearly in- interested by by uh, Ava Peron. And I would love to see a movie maybe unmoored from the musical about her because, you know, she's clearly like a fascinating, um, a fascinating character. Um, but I don't think that this movie does kind of justice to exactly what made her interesting. Yeah, I would absolutely agree on that one. But uh, let's have another song, shall we? Let's get away from from muddy things like fascism and just have... Like politics. <laughs> let's have a, a stunning, stunning saxophone, shall we? Let's do that. like i think i know what i'm doing for my next album uh saxophone man it, it rarely misses does it um that song another suitcase in another hall you get a couple of blasts of that in the movie particularly the one time when andrea core shows up for like all of one minute she plays the mistress of uh juan peron and evita is surprisingly forgiving of him and very much like time to go love andrea core this is like 95 96 when she's uh in the movie she's in it for like almost no time at all but she does get to sing that like very nice hook you know like where am i going thing and get her very much you know core's signature vocal in there and i wanted more of her because like I, I think that's a really nice song. I, I don't love this film. I think it is a bit of a mess. Some of the songs work. I think this is definitely one of them. And I think some of the kind of recurring motifs, those kind of hooks are kind of undeniable. Yeah, 100%. Like this, this is definitely um, one of the, one of the better songs. I think so far we've kind of played the the kind of the more bombastic uh, songs in it that really kind of don't work at all. Particularly as I was saying, like when you, when you contrast um, something like, you know, the lady's got potential, which is, you know, Bandera singing away as, 
you know, tanks like run through the street and like people are being picked out of rubble. Doesn't really work, but something like this, uh, another suitcase, another hall, really, really does. And when they strip it back and just kind of leave it to people to sing, uh, it really works quite well. Um, I do love in this uh, Madonna's line to Andrea Kaur when she when she kind of comes in and Andrea Kaur is like, I guess, in Peron's bed and it's just after uh, Ava has met Juan and she just comes in. Hello and goodbye. I've just unemployed you. <laughs> Remarkable. <laughs> that is very good. Uh, you mentioned uh, a much more bombastic song there, which, to be fair, if, if you're hearing this film for Antonio Banderas giving it his all, you can't get much better than this. So here's Antonio Banderas giving us, um, again, a fucking Tommy Gun rapid fire history lesson. This song is called The Ladies Got Potential. <laughs> In June of 43 there was a military coup Behind it was a gang called the G.O.U Who did not feel the need to be elected They had themselves a party at the point of a gun They were slightly to the right of a tool of their hand A bomb or two and very few objectives It's this close to status quo. I can't not see that guitar move. Like, it's so top of the pops. I mean, like, it's it's ridiculous. It's a cartoon. Again, like I say, I'm not I'm not suddenly turning around being like, this film rules, man. Because when I was putting those clips together, I was like, these clips rule. I'm having a good time. But, like, you, you got to suffer through a bit of a slog to get there. Again, we'll get back into Banderas because I do want to I do want to spotlight him. But, like... That song in particular, right, invites, as you say, like the tone, there's a bit of a tonal mash that doesn't quite work. And it's it's about like war and, and, and coups and death and all this kind of stuff. I mean, despite depictions of conflict, there is no discernible conflict in this film? No, um, that, that that's kind of one of the things about it. It's just like, it's all, it's all with Banderas being kind of the Greek chorus. He's basically just kind of like getting you up to speed so you can have your scenes with Evita where she gets to, you know, sing Don't Cry For Me Argentina. Like it, a lot of it feels like, you know, I mentioned earlier, he's doing a lot of, he's doing a lot of the, the backbreaking labor in this movie. Um, and, you know, this song is like a perfect example of it where it's, it's probably covering like a couple of years of political unrest in Argentina. Um, it, you know, it fires through it. It kind of undermines it a little bit with even just like, it's an incredibly catchy song that I've been, found myself like humming to and like singing. But even, you know, as you said, it's, it's, it is cartoonish. It's comic. The way, the way he elongates democracy dies and just goes for it for like, you know, <laughs> 10 seconds. Um, it really kind of clashes with, you know, what's going on. Like, I, Neither of us have seen the the actual uh, stage production. I don't think it has this kind of level of of realism that that Parker brings to it, which is, you know, it's definitely a choice. And as I said, like we admire this movie visually, but um, yeah, it really kind of clangs 
up against uh, what's actually been saying. Yeah, and I mean, like in terms of Antonio Banderas, like I say, I think he he has so much charisma. I read um I read a couple of reviews of this film because it was it got very mixed reviews, and I think with Roger Ebert, the late great Roger Ebert, um described him as like you know Antonio Banderas, the Spanish superstar, and this was an interesting time for him because this wasn't his breakout role per se. Obviously, he'd been acting quite a lot um in his native language for a while, and he had some big ones before this. He had the likes of Assassins, that uh, hilarious um Sylvester Stallone, Julianne Moore. I think it's Robert Rodriguez, is it possibly? Um, or the Wachowskis wrote the script or something, but like. It, of course, these days is more famous for that gif of him looking lustily at a laptop and leaning back in his chair and, like, biting his fist. <laughs> Seek that out. Yeah, it was Richard Donner who made Assassins. And, I, and I, love, I love that you've gone to, you know, he'd made some successful films before and went to Assassins before you went to Interview with the Vampire. Oh, my God. Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> Shame on me. Uh, Assassins just has that kind and, of... And Desperado, of course, at that stage. Yeah, Desperado, um, which was the first time I ever saw him in anything. Um, but it's weird. So he makes a Vita in 96 and doesn't make anything for two more years. Then The Mask of Zorro comes out. And by that point, he's like Hollywood A-list. But he goes in the wilderness. He makes crap like the 13th Warrior and play it to the bone and lots of other stuff. I'm forgetting. Ballistic X versus Sever, one of those all-time bad ones. I kind of feel like in recent years, um, I guess particularly through his association, with uh, Pedro Almodovar and others, he's very much being taken not just seriously again, but he's now being talked about as maybe one of the greats. Where do you land on him? Um, I think that he, he is he's he is really really good, but he kind of went through a period of making like lots of very very bad movies. He has been a kind of a king of the you know uh, Jerry Action directed DVD. Like he's he's put out a couple of them, and like you know maybe they're they're an easy paycheck, but. He is, he is kind of lucky, I suppose, um, that he has that relationship with Almodovar kind of going back from like the early nineties that, you know, he can come and show up in the skin I live in or, um, pain and glory last year. Um, he popped up in Soderbergh's The Laundromat, which I talked about before is an utterly terrible film, but yeah, you're, you're, you're burying like his biggest, maybe his biggest role is, um, Puss in Boots. I mean, not a, not a Shrek fan. It no, I, I really don't like, yeah, I don't like those films whatsoever, but I guess Puss in Boots is a bit of fun, maybe, I don't know. I think Shrek's kind of dreadful in general. I don't get it. I don't get the appeal. I don't get this weird revisionist appeal on it either. I fucking saw it in the cinema in 2001, guys. It sucked then, it sucks now. Yeah, um, I'm 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 not a huge, huge fan of it myself, but I guess, yeah, like he was, he made like four or five of them, probably made a spin-off of Puss in Boots. He's had a very interesting career. Like he's never... I never watch him and I'm like, I can't like pick out roles where he's like very bad. And he's in, he has been in bad movies, but um, he does pick some interesting roles. Like again, like going back to working on Motivar, um, he's in, yeah, he pops up in Haywire. He's great in that. Um, I do think he's a really, really good actor, but I mean, show me, show me any actor who's been, who's been working for four decades, who's got a spotless record. Like when you, when you make the amount that he makes, I guess there's going to be a lot of uh, very questionable roles. Yeah, that's fair. Um, We probably haven't focused enough on the leading light of this film, so let's do that just now. And of course, we'll cue it in with the most famous song from this film. I never expected it to 
Don't cry for me, Argentina. The truth is, I never left you. All through my wild days, my mad existence, I kept my promise. Don't keep your distance. That is a chorus. Don't cry for me, Argentina. Real quick, is it a good song? Yeah, it's is a, it played to death. It's an absolute banger. It's fantastic. Uh, All right. Yeah, like this was the kind of the the cultural legacy of this movie. I mean, obviously it existed before and was like a number one hit before, but I think it probably went to number one again in in the in certainly in, at the end of start of ninety seven. Um, it's the one thing I took away from it. Like I I used to hum it when I was a kid. It was just it was everywhere, um, and I still think it's really really good. As I said, like this movie and the musical itself operates best when it's this this kind of pace, this and not, you know, full on. Um but yeah, Madonna. Um I think she's pretty good in this film. Um she has kind of I don't know if she has a a, a lot to do. She's not in as much as kind of like you would have thought for a movie where she plays, you know, the title character. But um yeah, I think, you know, vocally, her performance is really, really good. Um, I think she has the presence. She looks quite like uh, Ava Peron. And yeah, it's a fairly, fairly solid role. Well, I'll tell you someone who doesn't appreciate her performance in this movie. It's Patti Lupone, who played Ava Peron originally, I believe, made the role famous. And I think it was three years ago or so, or maybe a little bit longer, she was on some American talk show. And she was asked what she thought about the Madonna version. Uh, she called it a piece of shit. And she also said, and I quote, Madonna is a movie killer. She's dead behind the eyes. She cannot act her way out of a paper bag. She should not be in film or on stage. She's a wonderful performer for what she does, but she is not an actress. Fucking hell. That is ruthless <laughs> don't, from Paddy. Don't hold back. Uh, I mean, I think movie-wise... movie, movie wise, uh, it's hard to kind of call upon great Madonna performances. I guess she's fun in a league of their own. It's a supporting role and, you know, desperately seeking Susan, the less said about body of evidence, the better I've never seen swept away. Um, a film that almost swept away the career of Guy Ritchie. And, you know, maybe it should have, I don't know. I mean, like, again, it's that thing of like, she can sing. We know this, you know, she can do that job, but like, it's very hard to imbue this character with anything because it's just a jukebox. Have you, have you seen Dick Tracy, David? I'm too scared to go back to it. It kind of traumatized me as a child. I think you've done a recent rewatch, have you? I did, yeah. It's it's one of the most fascinating blockbusters maybe that's ever been made where, you know, Warren Beatty kind of used all his built-up, uh, you know, credit with everyone in Hollywood to make this insanely weird adaptation of like a comic strip from like the, the 40s and the 50s um, where, you know, you know, it's supposed to be kind of like a gangster movie, but it's like incredibly technical. Or I think there's only six or seven colors in the entire film. Um, everyone is wearing insane prosthetics, some of which are like Lynchian in the terror that they invoke uh, within me. But Madonna is in it as a as a kind of a, a cabaret singer. And for a movie that is, for all intents and purposes, made for children, this is the thirstiest horniest, like, <laughs> sex-fueled performance I've ever seen in a kid's film. There is a scene where she's, like, trying to seduce Dick Tracy and, like, 
he's at his his desk at the at the at the police station and she climbs like on all fours on like front of his desk ass in his face basically just being like spank me atop this desk dick tracy <laughs> so anyway that's dick tracy i, I am i I'm isolating that audio. Just that that's gonna be like some kind of weird drop I'll have. Maybe it'd be like my messenger alert. Jesus Christ. Um yeah, no, I don't know. I feel like I saw Dick Tracy in the cinema and did not know what I was seeing because yeah, it's a, a mixture of grotesque and uh, I was probably too young to understand what I was really, really seeing. Um I, I mean like listen, I think you know, while I would I, I would posit that you haven't lived until you've heard Jonathan Price flatly sing I can find job satisfaction in Paraguay. At the same time, I wonder if we could do better. If Evita was being made today, who do you put behind the camera? Who do you put in front of the camera? Um, well, in front of the camera, I'm always I, I'm, I'm conscious of being critical of the casting of this movie, so I'm, I'm going to improve it, I hope. But I also want it to be successful. Um, so for Evita, I'm going with Rosalia. Now, I don't think I, could, I don't think I could tell you Three Rosalia songs, but I know that Rosalia would get the bums on the seats, and she's got she's got tunes. So I'm going with her, and um, she has made her acting debut. She was actually in uh, Pain and Glory with Antonio Banderas last year. She had a small role. So uh, for Shay, I'm I'm bringing him back. He's been making very poor films for too long. It's our old friend Oscar Isaac. Excellent. Yeah, perfect. Uh, for Juan Peron. I'm going to do something that you know happens a lot in uh, in stage musicals where someone will return but in a different role. I'm taking Antonio Banderas as my one. Ah, yeah, bring that's genius. Bring him back. Wow, that's really good. I'm impressed. Magaldi. This is when I was starting to struggle. I was like, okay, I need uh, an old, <laughs> an older, I potentially South American actor. I went with Ricardo Darin. I don't know if, if you've ever seen The Secrets in Their Eyes. He's a very good Argentine actor. Um, I went with him. And then to round it out in the Andrea Cora role, I've just gone with Ana de Armas or, or Selena Gomez. It could, you, could, you could pick or choose. <laughs> I was going to say Selena Gomez for the expanded role of the mistress. That's perfect. We're on the same page. This is beautiful. However, I do think we should um, be in thrall somehow. I think the Jimmy Nail role should go to another Newcastle son. I think it should be Charlie Hunnam. Get him in there. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Get- uh, can we find something for Edgar Ramirez to do? I'd like to get him into this movie. I don't know, maybe make a new character. There are a couple of there are another couple of roles. I think in the in the Rainbow Tour, a couple of people have a couple of lines. Um, you know, there's could could we get? Oh, and this, you know, I mean, I'm 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 going to sell this movie now. So is it in? Uh, I'm trying to think of this song. It's the one with the big chorus line of all the guys showering. That has like the most insane drum fills in it. Can we get Gail Garcia Bernal, Diego Luna, Edgar Ramirez all showering, singing in our movie again? Yeah, why not? I see no reason. Sorry, who um who's directing this thing again? Did you say? I haven't. I, I need to think on that. Um, you know, I, I don't want to be like super obvious and be like, do you, do you get do you get Lin Manuel Miranda to like write? Are we it gonna or? get um? Are we going to get Tom Hooper out of director jail for this one, are we? No, he he is in a life sentence, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> no chance of parole. It's a tricky one. Uh, David Fincher, I would say. Why not? <laughs> like, pivot him into... He, well... 
Wow, that was a that was a very like disdainful. We haven't even seen Mank yet, man. You're the one who's more excited about it than I am. Yeah, I am excited about Mank um, because it's a movie, a new movie that you get to watch in 2020, and isn't that a rare thing? It is a rare thing. So, final words on Evita. I think it's a fucking mess. It's a curiosity. I. I respect the hell out of Alan Parker for giving it 110. I respect the hell out of Antonio Banderas for giving it 120. Some of the songs are fun in isolation, but I just don't think it actually works. And I give the final word to Alan Parker. Um, Cause he, again, in this uh, wonderful essay that he wrote, he talked about its legacy and he said, soon after finishing the film, I described the making of, v- of Evita as like riding bareback on a crazed elephant strapped to a jet engine whilst Madonna combs your hair with a razor blade. Looking back on it after some years now, I view it with more affection. It's a brave film, a sung through opera about a difficult subject. So yeah, I mean, I I kind of, I came around on it because I'd, you know, it, it's been quite a while since we've recorded an episode. So I think like after we decided we were going to do it, I watched it probably like at the end of August and then um, lost my notes. So I kind of had to watch it again and had... Spent a bit of time with the uh, the soundtrack. I, I I sent you and Norma a video of you know me cruising through uh, <laughs> Dingle, listening to another suitcase, another hall. Uh, a perfect accompaniment for you know that gorgeous landscape in Kerry. Um, so I have a bit of fondness for it. Uh, it doesn't really work, but there's there's enough elements in it that uh, I don't mind. I don't know if I'd be ever able to kind of solely go back for the rewatch because one thing that we kind of didn't mention is that is it kind of peaks or you would assume coming into this movie that the peak or like the 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 crescendo is going to be don't cry for me argentina that probably hits at about the 55 minute mark and there's still like 120 minutes where as you said like not a huge amount happens and then they they basically they they bring evita back out to do you must love me which is the song that andrew Lloyd weber wrote for the movie which is his classic tactic of get that Oscar, you know, write a new, write a new song for the, for the, the adaptation. And it's kind of just a rehash of Don't Cry Me For Me Argentina. They're on the balcony again. It's a little bit more, you know, emotional because she's, she's dying and she's giving her last address. But, um, yeah, overall, a fun movie. I will 100% go to the YouTube clips of it. All right, that's fair. Um, Fair play for watching it a second time. I'm not sure I could manage it, but something I've watched more than once, something I'm very excited to do, our next film on this show. Again, we are in the remote era. There are lots of restrictions around, so please forgive any technical difficulties with this and other episodes and so on and so forth. But happily, I guess, you know, that kind of rough and ready vibe suits us because we're going to stay in the mid-90s. It is spooky season, and so... After me trying to do this film for a very long time, it's finally time, everybody. It is, of course, this bad boy. There is a legend that a crow can carry a soul back from the dead to seek justice and put the wrong things right. To move your death. I'm dead. And I move. Brandon Lee. It's not a good day to be a bad guy. The Crow Rated R. Is that gasoline I smell? No, it's The Crow Rated R. Finally, we get to talk about murdered rock star Eric Draven and his supernatural return to take down the villains that done it. How excited are you about this? Um... Yeah, I'm, 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 I haven't revisited this since I think I was a teenager. I, I don't think I've, I don't think it holds a, a, a special place, uh, as it does, as it does for you. But, 
Yeah, it should be fun. As you mentioned, you have been banging uh, the crow drum since <laughs> since maybe the second episode. I think you came very close to it um, before we before we did Queen of the Damned. So this is this is a very important important uh, episode for you. Absolutely, yeah. So I'm looking forward. Absolutely, to it, you know. Um, we'll try and get more horror stuff in as well before the the horror season ends. We'll do our very very best. We do have more lined up in that regard. But the crow, I think, is an interesting one to go with. It's trashy. It's got a legacy. It's got a lot behind the scenes, a lot of tragedy, a lot of influence, a lot of impact. And I think it's a bit of a just a it's kind of a gothic riot of a film. So yeah, I'm I'm all about it, man. And it's gonna happen. David Higgins, thank you so much for um braving the world of Evita for approximately four hours and twenty minutes plus the soundtrack and lots more besides. You've really given it your all this time. Not a problem. Happy to do it. <laughs> He's just so humble. As for me, yeah, I mean, I'll probably look up some Antonio Banderas stuff on YouTube, but I'm I'm not going to return to it too often. But for now, my name is Dave Hanratty. This has been No Popcorn. There will be No Popcorn. And we'll be back pretty soon with The Crow. Get it watched. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. The order breakfast at the McDonald's drive-thru. Tell yourself you'll wait to eat it at work, but it smells way too good. So you eat it right there in the McDonald's parking lot meal. There's a meal for every morning at McDonald's. Right now, get any size iced coffee for 99 cents until 11 a.m. And pair it with your favorite breakfast sandwich or one of our tasty bakery treats. Price and participation may vary. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. McDonald's. I'm loving it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.